pray with me? Father in heaven, uh, we do pray that if it is true and we believe it so, that heaven's closer than it's ever been, that you would give us a glimpse of that, the events to it. And then, Father, today we'll learn how to live even now with a great expectation that heaven is to come. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn, please, to Hebrews in chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. I want to read uh, verses 18 through 29. Hebrews in chapter 12, please. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 18. Hear the word of God. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure uh, the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, the author of Hebrews sets this passage, obviously, in the same context in which we've been reading, and that is living by faith. And he is hoping, his expectation, his trust, is that the Holy Spirit will use this passage as these others that he's written in order to increase and strengthen the faith of its hearers, that should be your expectation too. I don't know what it is that you expect when you come to worship. I don't know what it is that you expect as a sermon begins. But in this one, what to expect is that God will strengthen your faith. Now he's defined what faith is for us. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seeing, that is, we're to live in such a way, knowing that we're not seeing everything that God has promised, that everything hasn't come to fruition yet. We didn't see Jesus uh, when he died on the cross. We didn't see him as his blood covered for our sins. We didn't see that with our eyes, but we believe it to be true, and we live in light of it, knowing that that's the case, that our sins are forgiven because of Jesus. We know a day is to come when, when sin will be no more. Well, it will be eradicated from our life and from our experience and from the world in which we're going to live. We don't see that right now, but we trust that that will be true and we live today in light of that coming, to live by faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. He gave us examples of those who've gone before us, who've lived by faith. 
And then he tells us what this life is like. He says it's like a race. It's like a marathon. It's we're to run with endurance the race that's been set before us. And in one way, the race is exactly the same for us all. It's a race that's to be lived trusting in God. It's a race that's to be run by faith, according to the word of God, listening to God and following after him. In another way, the race could be very different for each of us because the race laid out before us, the particular steps that God ordains for us to follow and to live in circumstantially may be quite different. And it may vary in the course of our lives. Sometimes life seems pleasant. Sometimes life seems difficult. Some seem to have more difficulty than others, it appears. Some more tragedy, some less. And so that race might look different in terms of the circumstances of our lives. That's the difference. The similarity is that we're all to live this trusting and trusting in God. And he's saying, now, if you're going to run this race, therefore, you need to lay aside every encumbrance, every weight that might trip you up whether it be sin or simply something that isn't beneficial in your running of this race. Lay that aside, because what's most important is getting on with this. Most important is trusting God. Most important is carrying on, living out this life by faith. And so he says, look to Jesus, because he's the author of faith. I hope that through that particular passage, that each day that you and I are praying that Jesus will give us faith that he will strengthen our faith, that we look to him as the author of faith to help us by strengthening, by giving us faith. He's the perfecter of our faith. I hope that in these days that we're praying to Jesus, that he will perfect our faith, not simply strengthen it, but purify it. And then we're to look to Jesus too as our example, because the author of Hebrews is going to lay out living by faith in the most difficult of circumstances, and that is in the circumstance of suffering. And he says, so look to Jesus, our example, because he too suffered. And because he suffered, we know, therefore, that suffering doesn't mean that God has fallen asleep. It doesn't mean that God isn't wise. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. Because God ordained the suffering that Jesus experienced. And it was out of God's wisdom that Jesus suffered as he did. And it was because he was his beloved son that Jesus suffered as he did. In fact, we know from the author of Hebrews, in fact, that Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. The same is true for us. That God has ordained the steps of our lives. And he has ordained in those steps a measure of suffering. And it is through that suffering that he has ordained that his wisdom is revealed and his love for us is revealed. His love as a father loves a child because this suffering is his discipline, not punishment. This suffering is his discipline that is his training, our education to share in his holiness. You see, as his children, the intention of a good father through ordaining suffering is that we would grow in holiness, that we would be trained by it, and that's the good work of God in us by means of this suffering. He's ordained it. He's wise. He loves us. And now he says, walk in it. And so after telling all of that to this particular group of suffering people, the author of Hebrews, by that truth, has earned the right to tell them that, listen, if you're discouraged, if your hands are drooping in the race, if your knees are wobbling, if you don't want to stay on the path, He's earned the right to be able to say, 
Lift up your hands. Get them in running position. Stabilize your knees. Strengthen them. And make straight your path. Get back on that path and continue to run. Because he knows that's what's at value. That's what's really important in life. Don't get sidetracked. Because if you do, that's disastrous. So he says, get back on and keep running. And the way that you run, he said, remember from last week, we make peace with all people, even those who persecute us, and even those with whom we're running. We make peace and we strive for holiness. Because you see, that's what's happening on this race. We're becoming increasingly holy. That God is increasingly conforming us to the image of Christ. And so he says, that's what you must strive for in the midst of this race. If you're not striving for that, it's going to be a wasted race. You won't get the point of the race. And so he says, strive for holiness. Because he says, and and not only that, but in your own striving, you need to look around and make sure that none of us who's running this race misses the grace of God. That is, that none of us miss being trained by the suffering we go through for holiness sake. That none of us misses that. Because you see, if any of us misses that, then what's going to happen to us is that we're going to become bitter. And that bitterness will spread like poison. And so he says, ultimately this, don't be like Esau. So don't be like Esau, who, who despised his birthright. You remember that story? We talked about this last Sunday. You remember Jacob and Esau, born to Isaac and Rebekah. Old Testament stuff. Twin boys. Esau born first, Jacob second. Esau, therefore, was to have the birthright and, and thus inherit not only his father's great blessing to the firstborn and his father's um, uh, property, but also because of the nature of who Isaac was, the firstborn of his was going to inherit the covenant promises. He's going to carry on the covenant, the covenant of God, the promises that God made with Abraham. As you remember, there was a time that Esau got very, very hungry and he thought he was going to die. My suspicion is he wasn't, but he thought he was going to die. Felt that way. He was overtaken by it. His brother was cooking lunch. And so he sold his birthright to his brother Jacob for lunch, for a bowl of soup. And then a time came when, the, when Isaac was dying and Jacob and Esau went for his blessing. Jacob snuck in first, received the blessing of the firstborn. Isaac came in second, wanted the blessing of the firstborn. But it was gone. It was too late. Though he sought that blessing with tears, it made him very sad not to get it. He found no place to repent. Because it was gone. And we know that there was not any real heartfelt, sincere repentance on the part of Esau. Because at that moment he hated his brother and desired to kill him. He was never sorry for what he did in selling the birthright and giving it up. But turned to hate his brother. The author of Hebrews says, listen, don't be like that. You need to understand what you have. And so in this particular passage, he's going to give it one more shot before he's done with this. And he wants to encourage them to strengthen their faith. He wants to encourage them to say, don't sell your birthright. Don't give up on the race. Keep on running because you need to see what you have. And in order to make this point, he's going to make a comparison, as he's been doing throughout this message all along, a comparison between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. All right? The Old Testament and the New Testament. What was promised... Uh, 
and told and happened before Jesus came and after. He was going to make that comparison to them. Now, it's helpful, I think, for us to review just a couple of just a couple technical points. And I think this will help you understand his point, and even as you read through the Bible from beginning to end. These two points. One, called progressive revelation. I'm going to teach you a little theology here, so just bear with me. And the second is this expression we've used quite often called the history of redemption. If you understand those two things, reading the Bible from Genesis to Revelation will be very helpful to you, much easier for you. Um, When we talk about progressive revelation, all we're saying is that when you begin in Genesis, you know a little bit about God. It's significant what you learn about God in Genesis 1 and 2, that he's the creator of all that is. But as it unfolds from Genesis on through, God reveals himself increasingly. You get to know him more and more. And if you could only imagine living in that history, you realize that through this history, God is going to be revealing himself increasingly. The truth of the matter is, we know from Scripture about God way more than what the Old Testament saints knew. Right? Because Jesus has come. We see in fruition what they only hoped for, what they were told about in symbol form and so forth. But we get to see it. So, so God reveals himself to us increasingly from Genesis to Revelation as we read through the scripture. Secondly, what we're having revealed to us is this understanding of redemption that is, that is our salvation. How God's going to purchase for himself a people to worship him. How he's going to purchase himself a people to be his very own people. And we see that play out through history all the way from Genesis on through the scripture. All the way from Genesis on through the coming of Jesus. You can see it from Genesis 3.15, that verse where, where God promises to send someone from the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. Okay, we know something's going to happen. We see it then spelled out and fleshed out even more as the promises are made to Abraham. We see it even more through the time with Moses and on Mount Sinai when they received the law and as the tabernacles built and as the sacrifices are made and as the priests represent the people and all of that. We see it even more. We see it as the kings come who become the righteous representation representatives of God's justice and holiness on the earth. Uh, we see that in the kings of Israel. At least we're supposed to. And, and then increasingly... Uh, We see how this is going to play out as the prophets bring their word. And then Jesus comes and we go, "Ah, that's it. And so we we, we read through and we find how God's redemption is played out through history. Now, with those two little concepts in mind, the author of Hebrews is coming to say, what I want you to do, people who have been born after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, you people, I want you to think about The situation with your forebearers, with those saints in the Old Testament. And what he wants to do here, what we need to grab a hold of, is he wants to tell us what we have. And he wants to tell us the value of what we have so that we'll never let go. So that we'll continue to run. So that we won't sell it like Esau did, so that we won't despise it and think it's nothing, so that when suffering comes into our lives, we won't say, well, because I'm going to die, what good is this faith? Or because I don't have this in my life anymore, what good's faith? Or because I I don't have this job anymore, what's good believing in, what's so good about believing in Jesus? Or I don't have my health, so why should I continue on in this race? He wants to make sure that what we have is better than life. 
that what we have, as Moses would put it, is better than the treasures of Egypt. That what we have is better than anything else. Now notice how he does that. Verse 18. He says, for you've not come. He says, this isn't true of you. It was true of people way back in the days of Exodus, but it's not true of you because you've not come to what may, what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempt, tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. That's the picture of what happened at Mount Sinai. You can read about this in Exodus chapter 19 or Deuteronomy chapter 4. You remember after the Israelites left Egypt and they they went through the whole Red Sea experience and all of that, God brought them to this mountain where he was going to give them the law. And he says to Moses, I'm going to meet with you on this mountain. And, 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 And it was amazing, a terrifying sight. Big cloud, big trumpet blast. It shook, a whole mountain shaking. I mean, think about that. A whole mountain shaking. There you are standing there and this mountain begins to tremble at the voice of this one who is speaking. Can you imagine a voice like that that shakes a whole mountain? And there is such holiness in the very presence of God that God says to the people, to Moses, tell the people, don't even touch this mountain. If you do, you'll die. And if you do, you have to be stoned to death if you don't die on the spot. I mean, such holiness. So there was such great holiness that even Moses trembled with fear. And they said, we don't want to hear this voice. We don't want to listen to this voice. It's more than we can, it's more than we can bear. You see, it's at that point that, that God is revealing something about himself. What he's revealing about himself at that point in time is his great otherness. That is his tremendous, unfathomable holiness. That he's so righteous, so pure, so powerful, so wise, so loving, so pure. That when impurity comes even close to it, it just can't even stay in its presence. For the call to worship, I read that great passage out of Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah has this vision and he sees the Lord high and lifted up. And what happens to Isaiah in the midst of that? He just bites the dust. He cannot stand in the presence of God. And he says, he says I'm coming undone, meaning I'm just blown up. I'm falling apart. I feel like, I feel like my fingers are, are disconnecting from my hands. I feel like my arms are disconnecting from my shoulders. I feel like my legs are disconnecting from the rest of my body. My head's blown off. I just, and he says, I just can't stay here in this place. And he says, it's because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I come from a people of unclean lips, but my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. My eyes have seen the Lord of glory. And when he says I come from a, he says, when he says I'm a man of unclean lips, he's saying that everything that comes out of me is wicked, it's evil, it's impure. And it's as if he didn't really know that, at least like that, until he stood in the very presence of God. You read various accounts in the Old Testament. Gideon found the same thing. It was a, he, he was amazed after God came to him and spoke to him. He said, I'm still alive. How could that be? My eyes have seen God and I'm still alive. 
The people in the days of Moses had that kind of experience with God. That's why I think that Paul, in writing in 2 Corinthians, refers to the Old Covenant as a ministry of death, as a ministry of condemnation. And you think, well, wasn't there any grace given? There will be. But at that moment in time, as God's revealing himself in history, he reveals himself as the holy God in front of whom and in whose presence no one can stand. And at that point in time, it was clear, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is meeting this holy God and facing his holy wrath. Now, grace would be revealed in the Old Covenant, and grace would be given in the Old Covenant, but it wouldn't be revealed really as sharply, as keenly as God's holiness and wrath. I mean, his holiness and wrath was right up front. I mean, there would be times that the the earth would open up and swallow people. There would be times when people would die right on the spot, right? You'd see his wrath. But you could only see his grace in symbol form, in shadow, pointing to something else. It wasn't quite so clear. It wasn't quite so upfront. There was this tabernacle, this holy place, and inside this most holy place. And there were these priests who would wash themselves and who would represent you before him. And you go, okay, you must have to be clean before you enter the presence of God. But they knew that water didn't really cleanse them spiritually, didn't cleanse their hearts and souls. But it gave the impression of that. It was a ceremonial cleaning. And then you said, in order to come into the presence of a a holy God, since we've sinned, we must bring sacrifice. The sacrifice must be unblemished. The sacrifice must substitute for us its life for ours because we know we deserve death in his presence, but God in his grace will accept this animal on our behalf. But you see, that was just a shadow of what was to come. It wasn't 2020. It wasn't so clear. And you know that when you're walking down on a sidewalk or you see a shadow on the road, you know that that shadow can only be there because there's a reality that's being reflected. Well, that's this, these, these sacrifices and these priests and this tabernacle simply reflected a reality that they couldn't quite see. But then he goes on, verse 22, to say to them and to us, but you have, ah, see the contrast. It says you, you didn't have this holy mountain experience. Here's what you have. And he says, I want you to see what you've been given. And I want you to hang on to that. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I mean, that just sounds better, doesn't it? I mean, just even though you may not know what all that means, that just sounds better. Okay, that's, that's good. And when he says Mount Zion, when he says the city of the living God, when he says this new Jerusalem, he's, he's referring to this, to, to heaven. He's saying that's where you've, you've gone. You've gone right into the very presence of God. That was your introduction to God. It wasn't a holy mountain. 
It was, it was this entering into the, to the very uh, presence of God, this, this new Jerusalem, this heavenly Jerusalem. We read about that in Revelation 21 when it comes down at the, in the end. And, and he says, we're citizens of that. That's where you've gone, right into the very presence of God. This priest who lived on the streets from you didn't have to go for you. That animal didn't have to be killed for you. You, in Jesus, went right there. That's where you went. And you went to innumerable angels and festal gathering. The scripture says in Deuteronomy that there are all kinds of angels around this shaking mountain. And, and the people were afraid of all of that. And these angels were there. But now there are angels in glory. There's angels at Mount Zion. There's angels in the city of the living God. There's angels, you see, uh, in this uh, uh, new Jerusalem, this heavenly Jerusalem. And it's a festal gathering. Uh, they're worshiping. For instance, we see a, a glimpse of that in, 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 in Revelation in chapter 7, verse 11, and all the angels, John sees, and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might to our God forever and ever. Uh, amen. And the reason they were worshiping was because they, were, they knew that this Lamb of God had purchased men and women from every tongue, tribe, and people and nation that he had given himself for them. And they were pleased. Uh, you know what Jesus said about any sinner saved, what happens in heaven. There's great rejoicing before the angels. I mean, it's a huge party. I think the angels are the hosts. I mean, I think they bring the cake uh, because they're all excited because there's someone saved. And he says, that's what you entered into. Your experience wasn't this mountain shaking. Your experience, think about this. Your experience was a party in heaven. Your experience was the very presence of God. That's what you came to when you came. He said, and you came to the assembly. Really, you could translate that also church. To the assembly, to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Again, Esau was firstborn. He was heir of the promises of God. Because you're a believer in Jesus, you entered as firstborn. You entered as one who's heir of the promises of God. And he's saying, hang on to that. You're enrolled in heaven. Your citizenship is in heaven. See, it's interesting. There is no location for Christians to go to by way of pilgrimage. Right? I mean, there is no place for us to go. Other than heaven. I mean, that's, that's home. Ultimately speaking, the new earth will be home for us. Uh, there's, there's no pilgrimage for us to go to. We have no Mecca. We have no Jerusalem. Other than the new one. And we're already, spiritually speaking, there. We don't need to travel anywhere. Now, if you want to go to Jerusalem or go to the Holy Land and learn stuff, that's fine. But you don't get any points for that. Right? That's no different than going to Boston <laughs> in terms of points, right? Because we don't, we don't have any holy place. The presence of God brings holiness. Our place, our pilgrimage is glory. So we're enrolled there. So that's where you came to. You didn't have to come to some mountain you could touch that was real, that was shaking, that was terrifying. That's not where you, you went right. You didn't pass go. You didn't collect $200. You went directly there, you see. Directly there. 
And then he said, you come to God, the judge of all. Now, that doesn't sound too happy, except the fact that you're able to come into the presence of one who is the judge. How can you do that? You see, they were terrified being in the presence of God, the judge. We needn't be terrified in the presence of God, the judge. Why? Because God, the judge, is our father. You see? And we've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That is, when you glance, if you could, as the Apostle John did in the Revelation, if you would glance into glory, what you would see are the spirits of those who have gone before us, believers in Jesus, who have been made perfect, disembodied souls. They don't have bodies yet because that hasn't happened in the history of redemption. The body thing hasn't happened yet. But there they are, made perfect. And you go, oh. This training really works. This holiness really does come. He says, that's what you've come to. And you've come to Jesus, obviously, crucial climax of this expression. And to Jesus, who's the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What makes the new covenant new? Old covenant, new covenant. What makes the new covenant new? Not a trick question. Same old answer. Jesus, right? Jesus makes the new covenant new. The old covenant pointed to him. The shadows that they saw, the tabernacle, the sacrifice, the priests, existed because Jesus was standing there in the glory of his Father. And so all of that was the shadow of Jesus. And he's the reality. And so when the reality comes, you see, saying you've come right into him. You've come right into this one who doesn't make you necessarily tremble and shake at the sound of his voice. But what you hear from him is something like this. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. That's all we hear. Now in God's Revelation in Exodus 19, in the history of redemption, by way of Exodus 19, what they heard was the law. I am holy. This is how you must live. And everybody says, we can't. He said, ah, the wages of sin is death. That's what was clear. What was shadow was grace. Now what we see, clearly, because Jesus has come, clearly, because in the history of redemption, the new covenant is here in Jesus. What we see clearly now, what we hear clearly now is come to me. It's all done. Everything that you look for, it's all done. Come to me. If you're weary, if you're burdened by sin, come to me and I'll cleanse you. Come to me. I'll, I'll take the burden. Come to me. I'll give you, I'll give you rest, you see. That's what we've come to. And the author of Hebrews is saying, how could you give that up? How could you not keep running? Since that's the glory to which you've come. And he says, this blood speaks, you know, the blood of Jesus speaks uh, a better word than the blood of Abel. Remember, Cain killed Abel all the way back in Genesis chapter 4. And what Abel's blood speaks is vengeance. What Jesus' blood speaks is forgiveness. For instance, in chapter 9, we read this of Jesus' blood. 
He says, verse 11, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. See, what Jesus' blood speaks to us is this. I bought you. I paid for your sins. You were indebted to the wrath of God. You were indebted to the condemnation of God. You were indebted to hell. And I bought, I paid, I paid that. That's what the blood of Jesus speaks to us. Not only that, he speaks, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The blood of Jesus speaks and says, listen, now you can live. You can get away from all these things that are just dead. And now you can really live. And your conscience can be cleared, knowing you're forgiven, to be able to live, to really serve me and to live. Verse 19 of chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us in the curtain that is through his flesh, since we have a great high priest in the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart. He's saying, listen, the blood of Jesus says, come close, come near. You know that I always call it the Billy Graham hymn. Uh, just as I am, you know? I don't know about you, but when I hear that song in my head, I also hear feet shuffling, people coming forward, and somebody saying the buses will wait, and all those kinds of things. It's a great song, because it teaches us a very important lesson, and that is we cannot come to God as we are. If we come to God as we are, what we'll find is a shaking, terrifying, condemning mountain. That song says, just as I am, with just one plea, but that his blood, how's it go, was shed for me. As I bids, and as he bids me come to him, the Lamb of God, I come. See, we go to Jesus. We go to Jesus just as we are. We go to Jesus with our sin. And he mediates for us. Because we can't go to God as we are. We go to the Lamb of God just as we are. And so the blood of Jesus speaks that way to us. He says, come, come on, come on, come on. I'll take you there. If you just jump over me, you'll get torched. You'll be like a, this is a Jonathan Edwards expression, you'll be like a, a, a bug on a lamp. Psst, right? But he says, come to me, I'll, I'll take you. And then you'll be received in the city of the living God. You'll be received in Mount Zion. You'll be received in the New Jerusalem. The angels will throw a party for you. You'll go in front of God the judge and he will receive you. Because you're coming through me, the mediator of the new covenant. And so verse 25 says this. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Of course. I mean, that's the same warning that the author of Hebrews has been giving us all along. Don't refuse him. Who is speaking? Don't become dull of hearing. Don't become hardened of heart. Remember what you have. Don't be like Esau who refused to, to look at his birthright and see the value of it. That little, this is interesting, that little word, uh, refuse, is 
also translated in Luke chapter 14 with the word excuse. It's the same concept. If you refuse something, you excuse yourself from it. You might remember this parable that that Jesus spoke. Verse 15, Luke 14. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at that time for the banquet he sent, and at the time for the banquet he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come for everything that is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. That is, they all refused the invitation. They all refused to really hear what was being spoken to them. What was being spoken to them is that this king is inviting you to this great banquet. What could be better than that? But they began to make excuses. They began to refuse. The first said, I bought a field. I must go out and see it. Uh, Please uh, have me excused. That is, I'm going to refuse it because I have this piece of land. Now, a piece of land is a fine thing. But the king would have been astounded by that. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You're going to go out to your land when you could come to my banquet? It just didn't make any sense. And then he went on. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I must go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. No, a wife's a fine thing. I've been told by my wife. It's a fine thing. But in this context, what's finer is going to the kings for a banquet. That's better. And there's a sense in which the king's thinking, don't you get it? Don't you understand what you've come to? Don't you understand this invitation? So the the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and so there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and and compel people to come in that my house may be filled for I tell you none of these men who are invited shall taste my banquet. He says, Go out to the poor. They'll realize. They'll get it. They'll understand what they've been given. And you see, that's us in this story. In this story, we're not the ones with the field and the oxen and the wife. We're the ones who are crippled and lame and all of that. We're the ones who should be able, by the grace of God, to look and see our need, to look and see our desperate situation and say, I just received an invitation to be received by the judge of the world and accepted by him to have angels throw a party for me, to come in through Jesus and to be forgiven my sins, to be purchased and all of that, or I can stay in my sins and be condemned. All right? That's the point here. And so the author of Hebrews, don't refuse him who is speaking, for if they didn't escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. In other words, in Exodus 19, they didn't escape with just that glimpse of the holiness of God. How much more will we not escape knowing what we know? given what's happened since then in the coming of Jesus. Don't turn away. Verse 26. At that time his voice shook the earth, and now, but now he has promised, yet once more I shall shake not on the earth but the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. 
that is things that have been made in order that the things cannot be shaken, that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You can just feel the cadence of this begin to change from this very positive statement now to this deeper warning. But yet in this warning for us, it's great joy and great comfort. He said, listen, I'll be honest with you, God says. I'm going to shake things up again. This time even more. I'm going to shake the earth and heavens. I'm going to shake everything. I'm going to do that so that what can't be shaken will remain. There's an earthquake. That which couldn't have been shaken, wasn't shaken, remains. He says, that's going to happen again. And we know what he's referring to. He's referring to the, the end. He's referring to the second coming of Jesus. He's referring to all those events that take place right before that. Everything is going to be shaken. And the reason that it's going to be shaken is so that everything that doesn't reflect him, everything that doesn't cling to Christ, will be shaken and destroyed. And you say, well, what will be left? Well, Jesus put it like this, all the treasures in heaven. The Apostle Paul put it like this, all that won't be burned up is hay and stubble. The Apostle Peter put it like this, that these fiery trials that come refine your faith. And you see, what will be left after that is everything that reflects Christ. And then it will be glorified. All in one fell, fell swoop. You say, well, how can that be comforting to me? Especially when he ends this little phrase that says, our God is a consuming fire. What do you think about that? Does that frighten you? Well, it should. If you don't believe in Jesus. If you have nobody to mediate you, your presence, before God. Because then you will receive the very brunt of this shaking and all that. But if Jesus is your mediator, then you see, you needn't be afraid. Because what will be shaking is that which is not looking to him. What will be shaken is that which isn't attached to him if you're attached to him. And you needn't worry. Because what will happen is that God's adversaries and yours will be shaken away. What will happen is that all your impurities and all those things that hinder you and all those things that you've come to learn to despise because they're against the things of God will be burned away. And there you will be. And so the author of Hebrews says, listen, what I want you to do now is I want you to offer God acceptable worship with reverence. Let me begin earlier in verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. He says, listen, understand what you've been given and be grateful. Uh, The organization that works with kids that I love called Young Life has an expression. And the expression is this. uh, It's a sin to bore a kid with the gospel. Now, I have to be honest with you. I don't know if I believe that or not. But here's what I do believe. 
It's a sin to be bored with the gospel. It's a sin to be bored with the gospel. It's a sin not to be grateful for what God has given to us. And you say, what happens? And we know this. I'm not, you know, we know this. We know that we can go through the motions as a believer in Christ. We know there are good days and bad days spiritually and strong days and weak days and days when we're on task and days when we're not and weeks and months and all that. I'm, you know, we're all in the same boat. But the truth of the matter is what we all have to grab a hold of is it's a sin to be bored with the gospel. It's a sin to be ungrateful. Because when we're ungrateful, it just simply means we're not thinking about, we're not grabbing hold of, we're not understanding what we've been given. Because gratefulness comes not by comparing what we have with what we want or need. But gratefulness comes by comparing what we have with what we deserve. And what we deserve is that holy mountain that will torch us, that will condemn us. And what we get is the blood of Jesus that speaks and says, I bought you. And so he says, keep running. Don't sell out. Even when it's hard. Because no matter what you can get for this, it isn't worth it. No matter what you feel like you can get, it isn't worth it. Even a moment of what might feel like reprieve, it isn't worth it. Keep running. Make a straight path. Keep going. And then when the shaking comes, you'll stand firm. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me, for us. We can take this word, this big word that began at least in chapter 11. And I pray that we would run by faith, continuing on, not giving up. The day wouldn't go by where we wouldn't be refreshed and renewed with gratitude by what you've done for us in Jesus. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you there are elders available to pray after uh, we're finished. So please, you can meet with them in the office area. Uh, Do that. The response to the benediction is a long one. It says, we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Hallelujah. I could have put, our God is a consuming fire, hallelujah. Uh, Because for the believer, it means the same thing. But I thought I'd go with this one for today. We have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty and power both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Hallelujah.